Chapter Eighteen of One of the Twenty Eighth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. One of the Twenty Eighth by G. A. Henty. Chapter Eighteen. Waterloo. The Prussians indeed had been beaten at Ligny. Their three corps, numbering eighty thousand men with two hundred and twenty-eight guns, had been attacked by Napoleon, with sixty thousand men, with two hundred and four guns. The battle was contested with extraordinary obstinacy on both sides. The villages of Ligny and Saint-Armand were taken and retaken over and over again, and for hours the desperate strife in and around them continued without secession. Both parties continued to send down reinforcements to these points, but neither could succeed in obtaining entire possession of them. The faults which Wellington had perceived in the Prussian position told against Blucher. The villages were too far in advance of the heights on which the army was posted, and his reinforcements were therefore a long time in reaching the spot where they were required to act. They were, too, as they descended the hill under the observation of Napoleon, who was able to anticipate their arrival by moving up supports on his side, and who noted the time when Blucher's last reserves behind Linné had come into action. At this critical moment General Lobau arrived from Charleroi with twelve thousand fresh men and thirty-eight guns, and at seven o'clock in the evening Napoleon launched this force with his division of guards, twenty thousand strong, who had hitherto been kept in reserve against the enemy. Ligny was captured and the victory won. The Prussians throughout the day had fought with great bravery. They had a long score to wipe out against the French, and were inspired as much by national hatred as by military ardor and they owed their defeat rather to the disadvantages of the position they held than to the superior fighting qualities of the French. Their cavalry had several times made desperate charges, sometimes against the French horse at others upon columns of infantry. In one of these Blucher himself was with them, and as they were in turn driven back by a charge of the French cuissaires, his horse was shot, bringing him to the ground. His aide-de-camp leaped off and threw his cloak over him as the cuissaires came thundering past, intent upon overtaking the Prussian cavalry. They paid no attention to the solitary dismounted man, and a few minutes later again passed the spot, this time in retreat, a fresh party of Prussian cavalry having met them. Again they passed by the fallen general, little dreaming that one of their most formidable and determined enemies lay there at their mercy. As soon as the Prussians came up, the dead horse was removed, and Blucher, who was insensible, carried to the rear, when he soon recovered and resumed the command. But though beaten, the Prussians were by no means routed. They had lost the key of their position, but night came on before the combat terminated, and under cover of the darkness they fell back quietly and in good order. General Thielemann's corps on the extreme Prussian left had taken but little part in the fighting, and as the center and right of the Prussian army retreated, he advanced, fell upon the French in the darkness, and for some time forced them back, thus giving time to the rest of the army to reform its ranks and recover its discipline. After having rendered great service by thus occupying the enemy, Thielman took up a position on the heights and remained facing the French, while the other corps d'armée took position in his rear. The French were too weary to follow up the advantage they had gained. The night passed without any attack being made, and at daybreak the Prussians started on their march to Wavre, the cavalry remaining behind to cover the movement checking pursuit, and conceal, if possible, from the French the line by which the army was falling back. Had the pursuit been taken up at daybreak by the French, they would soon have driven in the cavalry and ascertained the route taken by the infantry, 
but it was not until many hours had elapsed that the French got into motion, and by that time the Prussian cavalry had disappeared from their front, and nothing remained to inform them of the line by which the enemy had retreated. There was a general feeling of disappointment among the gallant defenders of Quatre Bras, when on the following morning orders were issued for them to abandon the ground they had so stoutly held. They had been astir at daylight, firearms were cleaned, fresh ammunition served out from the reserve wagons, and the men fell into the ranks, expecting that in a short time they would again be engaged. But no movement could be seen on the part of the enemy, and arms were again piled. The commissariat wagons had come up in the night, and rations were served out to the troops and breakfast prepared. As soon as this was over, strong parties were again sent over the battlefield to collect any wounded who had escaped the search of the night before. As soon as these were collected, the whole of the wounded were placed in ambulance wagons and country carts, and dispatched to Brussels. Presently a general movement of the great baggage trains was observed by the troops to be taking place, and the long column moved along the road to the north. The Duke had sent off a staff officer at daybreak to ascertain the state of things at Ligny. He returned with the report that the Prussians had left the field. He then sent out a small party of cavalry under Lieutenant Colonel Sir Alexander Gordon. This officer pushed forward until he encountered General Zeton, who was still at Sombreuf, but a mile distant from the battlefield. The general informed him of the whole events of the preceding day, and gave him the important intelligence that Blucher had retreated to Wavre, and would join hands with Wellington at Mont Saint-Jean, which the English general had previously fixed upon as the scene of the battle for the defense of Brussels. The news relieved Wellington of all anxiety. It had been before arranged that Blucher, if defeated, should, if possible, fall back to Wavre, but it was by no means certain that he would be able to do this, and had he been compelled by the events of the conflict to retire upon his base at Namur, he would have been unable to effect a junction for some days with Wellington, and the latter would have been obliged single-handed to bear the whole brunt of Napoleon's attack. The latter's plan had indeed been entirely based on the supposition that Blucher would retreat upon Namur, and in order to force him to do so, he had abstained from all attack upon the Prussian left, and employed his whole force against the right and centre, so as to swing him round and force him to retire by way of Namur. As soon as Wellington learned that Blucher had carried out the arrangement agreed upon, his mind was at ease. Orders were sent off at once to the troops advancing from various directions that they should move upon Mont-Saint-Jean. All the baggage was sent back to Brussels, while provisions for the troops were to be left at Mont-Saint-Jean where also the whole of the ammunition wagons were to be concentrated. Horsemen were sent along the roads to keep the baggage train moving, and they had orders that if the troops at Quatre Bras fell back upon them, they were at once to clear the road of all vehicles. Having issued all these orders, and seen that everything was in train, Wellington allowed the troops at Quatre Bras to rest themselves, and ordered their dinners to be cooked. No movement was yet to be seen on the part of the French. There was, therefore, no occasion to hurry. Those, therefore, of the men who were not out on patrol stretched themselves on the ground and rested till noon. Dinner over, the infantry marched off in two columns, the cavalry remaining until four o'clock in the afternoon, when upon the advance of Ney in front and Napoleon on the left they fell back, and after some sharp skirmishes with the enemy's light cavalry, joined the infantry before nightfall in their position near Mont-Saint-Jean and Waterloo. Rain had fallen for a time during the afternoon of the battle, and now at four o'clock it again began to come down heavily, soaking the troops to the skin. "'This is miserable, Stapleton,' Ralph said to his friend, after the regiment had piled arms on the ground. 
pointed out to them by the officers of the quartermaster's department. "'Well, I'm rather glad to hear you say it is miserable, Ralph. I was certainly thinking so myself. But you always accuse me of being a grumbler, and so I thought I would hold my tongue.' Ralph laughed. "'I don't think anyone could deny that it's miserable, Stapleton, but some people keep up their spirits under miserable circumstances, and others don't. This is one of the occasions on which it's really very hard to feel cheerful.' There's not a dry thing in the regiment. The rain is coming down steadily, and looks as if it meant to keep it up all night. The ground is fast turning into soft mud, and we've got to sleep upon it, or rather in it, for by the time we're ready to lie down it will be soft enough to let us sink right in. I think the best plan will be to try to get hold of a small bundle of rushes, or straw, or something of that sort, to keep our heads above it. Otherwise we shall risk a suffocation. It is beastly, Stapleton said emphatically. Look at the men. What a change in them since we marched along this road yesterday. Then they were full of fun and spirits, and now they look washed out and miserable. Were the French to attack us now, you wouldn't see our men fight as you did yesterday. Ah, but you must remember, Stapleton, the French are just as wet as we are. This is not a little private rain of our own, you know, got up for our special annoyance, but it extends right over the country. What nonsense you talk, Conway, as if I didn't know that. "'Well, you spoke as if you didn't, Stapleton. "'But you will see the fellows will fight when they are called upon. "'Just at present they're not only wet, but they're disgusted. "'And I own it is disgusting, after fighting as hard as we did yesterday, "'to find it's all been of no use, and that instead of marching against the enemy, "'we're marching away from them. "'Of course it can't be helped, and if we had waited another half-hour "'we should have had all the French army on us, "'and yesterday's work would have been mere child's play to it. "'Still I can quite enter into the soldiers' feelings.' Of course, they do not understand the position, and regard it as simply a retreat, instead of a mere shifting of ground to take up better position and fight again to-morrow. Still, this is a nice position, isn't it? You see, there's room enough along on the top of this slope for our whole army, and our guns will sweep the dip between us and the opposite rise, and if they attack, they'll have to experience the same sensations we did yesterday, of being pounded and pounded without the satisfaction of being able to return their fire. They must cross that dip to get at us, at least if they attack, which I suppose they will, as they will be the strongest party, and our artillery will be able to play upon them splendidly from this road. Then, too, there are two or three farmhouses nearer our side than theirs, and I suppose they will be held in force. That looks rather a nice old place among the trees there on our right. It has a wall and an enclosure, and they will have hard work to turn us out of it. Yes, I call this a fine place for a battle, and we shall have the advantage here of being able to see all over the field, and of knowing what's going on in other places, while yesterday one couldn't see three yards before one. During the whole time one was fighting, one felt that it might be of no use at all, for we might be getting smashed up in some other part of the field. Well, actually, I never thought anything about it, Stapleton said. My only idea was that I must look as if I wasn't afraid, and must set a good example to the men and that it was all very unpleasant, and that probably my turn might come next, and that I would give a good deal for something like a gallon of beer. As far as I can remember, those were my leading ideas yesterday. "'Well, Dennis, what is it?' Ralph asked his servant, who approached with a long face. "'Have you any dry tinder about you, Your Honour? I've been trying to strike a light for the last half-hour till the tinder-box is full of water, and I've knocked all the skin off my knuckles.' "'Well, that's bad, Dennis, but I don't think you'll get a fire anyhow.' The wood must be all too soaked to burn. Oh, I think it'll go, sir. I won't get it to light. I pulled up some pea-sticks from an old woman's garden, and the old witch came out and began at me as if I was robbing her of her eldest daughter. 
It's lucky I had a shilling about me, or bejabers she'd, she'd have brought down the provost guard upon me. And then maybe I would have had my back warm, the least taste of the world more than was pleasant. I had the sticks under a wagon to keep them dry, and Mike Doolan standing sentry over them. I promised him a stick or two for his own kindling. The weather's too bad entirely, Your Honor, and the boys are well-nigh broken-hearted at turning their backs to the Frenchmen. Aye, well, they'll turn their faces to-morrow, Dennis. And as for the weather, I guess you've got wet before now, digging praties in the old country. <laughs> I have that, Your Honor, many and many a time, and it's a uh, little I cared for it. But then there was a place to go into, and dry clothes to put on, and a warm ale to look forward to, with perhaps a drop of the crater afterward. And that makes all the difference in the world. What we're going to do to-night, sorrow me knows. You'll have to lie down in the mud, Dennis. Is it lie down, Your Honor? And when shall I get the mud off my uniform? And, and what will the Duke say in the morning, if he comes round and sees me looking like a hog that's been rolling in his sty? You won't be worse than anyone else, Dennis. You'll see, we shall all be in the same boat. Well, here's the tinder. I should recommend you to break up a cartridge and sprinkle the powder in among the leaves that you light your fire with. That's the difficulty, Your Honor. I got some wood, but divot a dry leaf can I find. Look here, Dennis. Open your knapsack under the wagon, and take out a shirt, and tear it into strips. You'll soon get a fire with that, and we can easily replace the shirt afterward. Aye, that's a grand idea, Your Honor. That'll do it, sure enough. Faith, and when the boys see how I do it, there'll be many a shirt burned this evening. Uh, but how about wood, Dennis? Ah, oh, there's plenty of wood, Your Honor. The commissaries have had two or three score of woodcutters at work on the edge of the forest all day, and there's timber felled and split enough for all of us and to spare. The pioneers of all the regiments have gone off with their axes to help, and I'll warrant there'll be a blaze all along the line presently. Now I'll be off, Your Honor, for the cooks are ready to boil the kettles as soon as we can get a fire. Great masses of the enemy could now be seen arriving on the crest of the opposite rise. Presently these broke up into regiments, and then moved along the crest, halted, and fell out. It was evident that nothing would be done until morning, for it was already beginning to get dusk. In a few minutes smoke rose in the rear of the regiment, and ere long half a dozen great fires were blazing. Men came from the regiments near to borrow brands. The news soon spread along the line of the means by which the twenty-eighth had kindled their fires, and, as Dennis had foretold, the number of shirts sacrificed for this purpose was large. Strong parties from each regiment were told off to go to the woodpiles and bring up logs, and in spite of the continued downfall of rain the men's spirits rose, and merry laughs were heard among the groups gathered round the fires. The officers had one to themselves, and a kettle was soon boiling, and tin cups of strong grog handed round. Of food, however, there was little beyond what scraps remained in the haversacks. The commissariat wagons had retired from Quatre Bras to leave room for those carrying the ammunition, and were now so far in the rear that it was impossible to get at their contents and distribute them among the troops. For an hour or two they chatted round the fire, and discussed the probabilities of the struggle that would begin in the morning. Just as night fell, there was a sharp artillery fight between two batteries of Picton's division, and the same number of the French. The latter commenced the fire by opening fire upon the infantry position, but were too far away to do much harm. Picton's guns got the range of a column of infantry, and created great havoc among them. Darkness put a stop to the fight, but until late at night skirmishes took place between the outposts. A troop of the Seventh Hussars charged and drove back a body of light cavalry, who kept on disturbing the vedettes, and the second light dragoons of the King's German Legion, posted in front of Hugemont, charged and drove back a column of the enemy's cavalry that approached too close. Gradually the fires burned low, the incessant downpour of rain so drenching the logs that it was impossible to keep them alight, 
and the troops lay down with their knapsacks under their heads, turned the capes of the greatcoats over their faces, and in spite of the deep soft mud below them, and the pouring rain above, soon sank to sleep. All night long a deep sound filled the air, telling of the heavy trains of artillery and ammunition wagons arriving from the rear to both armies, but nothing short of a heavy cannonade would have aroused the weary soldiers from their deep sleep. At twelve o'clock Ralph was called up as his company had to relieve that which furnished the posts in front of the position of the regiment. The orders were not to fire unless fired upon. A third of the men were thrown out as sentries, the other lay upon the ground fifty yards in the rear, ready to move forward to their support if necessary. Captain O'Connor left Ralph with the reserve, and himself paced up and down along the line of sentries, who were relieved every hour until morning broke, when the company rejoined the regiment. The troops could now obtain a view of the ground upon which they were to fight. Their line extended some two miles in length along the brow of a gradually sloping rise, the two extremities of which projected somewhat beyond the centre. The ground was open without woods or hedgerows, and about halfway down the slope lay four farms. On the right was Hugomont, a chateau with farm buildings attached to it, and a chapel. In front of this lay a thick wood with a close hedge, and the house and farm buildings were surrounded by a strong wall. In front of the centre of the line lay the farm and enclosures of La Haye Sainte, abutting on the main Charleroi road, which as it passed the farm ran between two deep banks. In front of the left of the line were the hamlets of Papelot and La Haye. At the top of the ridge the ground sloped backward, and the infantry were posted a little in the rear of the crest, which hid them from the sight of the enemy, and protected them from artillery fire. The whole of the slope, and the valley beyond it, was covered with waving corn or high grass, now ready for cutting. Upon the opposite side of the valley there was a similar rise, and on this was the French position. Nearly in the centre of this stood the farm called La Belle Alliance, close to which Napoleon took up his stand during the battle. Behind the British position the ground fell away, and then rose again gently to a crest, on which stood the villages of Waterloo and Mont-Saint-Jean. The great forest of Soignet extended to this point, so that, if obliged to fall back, Wellington had in his rear a position as defensible as that which he now occupied. The Allies were arranged in the following order. On the extreme left were Vandeleur's and Vivien's light cavalry brigades. Then came Picton's division, the first line being composed of Hanoverians, Dutch, and Belgians, with Pack's British brigade, which had suffered so severely in Quatre Bras, in its rear and Kemp's brigade extending to the Charleroi road. Alton's division was on the right of Picton's. Its second brigade, close to the road, consisted of the first and second light battalions of the German legion, and the sixth and eight battalions of the line. The second German battalion was stationed in the farm of La Haye Sainte. Next to these came a Hanoverian brigade, on the right of whom were Halkett's British brigade. On the extreme right was Cook's division, consisting of two brigades of the guards, having with them a Nassau regiment and two companies of Hanoverian riflemen. Behind the infantry line lay the cavalry. In reserve were a brigade of the 4th Division, the whole of the 2nd Division, and the Brunswickers, Dutch, and Belgians. The artillery were placed at intervals between the infantry and on various commanding points along the ridge. The Duke had expected to be attacked early, and as it was of the utmost importance to Napoleon to crush the British before the Prussians could come up, but the rain, which began to hold up as daylight appeared, had so soddened the deep soil that Napoleon thought that his cavalry, upon whom he greatly depended, would not be able to act, and he therefore lost many precious hours before he set his troops in motion. 
From the British position the heavy masses of French troops could be seen moving on the opposite heights to get into positions assigned to them, for it was scarcely a mile from the crest of one slope to that of the other. In point of numbers the armies were not ill-matched. Wellington had 49,608 infantry, 12,402 cavalry, 5,645 artillerymen, and 156 guns. Napoleon, who had detached Grouchy with his division in pursuit of the Prussians, had with him 48,950 infantry, 15,765 cavalry, 7,232 artillerymen, and 246 guns. He had, therefore, 4,300 men and 90 guns more than Wellington. But this does not represent the full disparity of strength, for Wellington had but 18,500 British infantry, including the German legion, who, having fought through the peninsula, were excellent troops, 7,800 cavalry, and 3,500 artillery. The remainder of his force consisted of troops of Hanover, Brunswick, Nassau, Holland, and Belgium, upon whom comparatively little reliance could be placed. The British infantry consisted almost entirely of young soldiers, while the whole of Napoleon's force were veterans. As early as six o'clock in the morning both armies had taken up the positions in which they were intended to fight. The British infantry were lying down, the cavalry dismounted in their rear, and so completely were they hidden from the sight of the French that Napoleon believed they had retreated, and was greatly enraged at their having, as he supposed, escaped him. While he was expressing his annoyance, General Foy, who had served against the Duke in the peninsula, rode up and said, "'Your Majesty is distressing yourself without just reason. Wellington never shows his troops until they are needed. A patrol of horse will soon find out whether he is before us or not. And if he be, I warn your Majesty that the British infantry are the very devil to fight.' The Emperor soon discovered that the British were still in front of him, for the English regiments were directed to clean their arms by firing them off, and the heavy fusillade reached Napoleon's ears. At eight o'clock Wellington, who was anxiously looking over in the direction from which he expected the Prussians to appear, saw a body of mounted men in the distance, and soon afterward a Prussian orderly rode in, and informed him that they were on the march to his assistance and would soon be on the field. Grouchy had, in fact, altogether failed to intercept them. Napoleon had made up his mind that after Ligny the Prussians would retreat toward Namur, and sent Grouchy in pursuit of them along the road. That officer had gone many miles before he discovered the route that they had really taken, and only came up at the rear of their column at Wavre on the morning of Waterloo. Blucher left one division to oppose him, and marched with the other three to join Wellington. It was not until nearly ten o'clock that the French attack began. Then a column moved down from the heights of La Belle Alliance against the wood of Hougemont, and as it approached the leading companies broke up into skirmishing order. As these arrived within musketry range, a scattering fire broke out from the hedges in front of the wood, and the Battle of Waterloo had begun. Soon from the high ground behind Hougamont, the batteries of artillery opened fire on the French column. Its skirmishers advanced bravely and constantly reinforced, drove back the Hanoverian and Nassau riflemen in front of the wood. Then Bull's battery of howitzers opened with shell upon them, and so well were these served that the French skirmishers fell back hotly pressed by the first and second brigade of guards issuing from the chateau. The roar of cannon speedily extended along both crests, the British aiming at the French columns, the French, who could see no foes with the exception of the lines of skirmishers, firing upon the British batteries. The French therefore suffered severely, while the Allies, sheltered behind the crest, 
were only exposed to the fire of the shot which grazed the ground in front, and then came plunging in among them. Prince Jerome, who commanded on Napoleon's left, sent strong columns of support to his skirmishers, acting against the right of the wood of Hugamont, while Foy's division moved to attack it in front. In spite of a terrific fire of artillery poured upon them, these brave troops moved on, supported by the concentrated fire of their powerful artillery against the British position. The light companies of the guards, after an obstinate resistance, were forced back through the wood. The French pushed on through the trees until they reached the hedge, which seemed to them to be the only defense of the buildings. But thirty yards in the rear was the orchard wall, flanked on the right by the low brick terraces of the garden. The whole of these had been carefully loopholed, and so terrible a storm of fire opened upon the French that they recoiled and sought shelter among the trees and the ditches in the rear. Prince Jerome, seeing that his skirmishers had won the wood, and knowing nothing of the formidable defences that arrested their advance, poured fresh masses of men down to their assistance. Although they suffered terribly from the British artillery fire, they gathered in the wood in such numbers that they gradually drove back the defenders into the buildings and yard, and completely surrounded the chateau. The defenders had not even time properly to barricade the gate. This was burst open and dense masses rushed in. The guards met them with the bayonet, and after fierce fighting drove them out and closed the gate again, and with their musketry fire compelled them to fall back from the buildings. Some of the French, however, advanced higher up the slope and opened fire upon one of the batteries with such effect that it had to withdraw. Four fresh companies of the guards advanced against them, clearing them away, and reinforced the defenders of the chateau. A desperate fight raged round the buildings, and one of the enemy's shells falling upon the chateau set it on fire. But the defence still continued, until Lord Salton, repulsing a desperate attack, and reinforced by two companies which came down the hill to his assistance, drove the enemy back and recaptured the orchard. This desperate conflict had lasted for three hours. While it was going on, Ney led twenty thousand men against the centre and left of the British position, advancing as usual in heavy column. Just as they were setting out at one o'clock, Napoleon discovered the Prussians advancing. He sent off a dispatch to Grouchy, ordering him to move straight upon the field of battle, but that general did not receive it until seven in the evening, when the fight was nearly over. It was just two in the afternoon when the columns poured down the hill, their attack heralded by a terrific fire upon the British line opposed to them. The slaughter among Picton's division was great, but although the Dutch and Hanoverians were shaken by the iron hail, they stood their ground. When the columns reached the dip of the valley and began to ascend the slopes toward the British division, they threw out clouds of skirmishers, and between these and the light troops of the Allies firing at once began and increased in volume, as the French neared the advanced posts of La Haye Sainte, Papillotte, and La Haye. The division of Durette drove out the Nassau troops from Papillotte, but reinforcements arrived from the British line, and the French, in turn, were expelled. The other three French columns advanced steadily, with thirty light guns in the intervals between them. Donzalat's brigade attacked La Haye Sainte, and in spite of a gallant resistance by the Germans made its way into the orchard and surrounded the enclosures. Another brigade, pushing along on the other side of the Charleroi road, were met by the fire of two companies of the rifle brigade who occupied a sand-pit there, and by their heavy and accurate fire checked the French advance. The other two divisions moved straight against that part of the crest held by Picton's division. The men of the Dutch-Belgian brigade, as soon as fire was opened upon them, lost all order and took to their heels amid the yells and execrations of the brigades of Kempt and Pack behind them. 
and it was with difficulty that the British soldiers were kept from firing into the fugitives. The Dutch artillery behind them tried to arrest the mob, but nothing could stop them. They fairly ran over the guns, men, and horses, rushed down the valley and through the village of Mont-Saint-Jean, and were not seen again in the field during the rest of the day. Picton's division was now left alone to bear the brunt of the French attack. The battle at Quatre Bras had terribly thinned its ranks, and the two brigades together did not muster more than three thousand men. Picton formed the whole in line and prepared to resist the charge of thirteen thousand infantry, besides heavy masses of cavalry, who were pressing forward, having, in spite of a stout resistance, driven in the riflemen from the sand-pit and the road above it. As the columns neared the British line, the fire from the French batteries suddenly ceased, their own troops now serving as a screen to the British. The heads of the columns halted and began to deploy into line. Picton seized the moment and shouted, A volley! Then charge! The French were but thirty yards away. A tremendous volley was poured into them, and then the British, with a shout, rushed forward, scrambled through a double hedgerow that separated them from the French, and fell upon them with a bayonet. The charge was irresistible. Taken in the act of deploying, the very numbers of the French told against them, and they were borne down the slope in confusion. Picton, struck by a musket-ball in the head, fell dead, and Kemp assumed the command, and his brigade followed up the attack and continued to drive the enemy down the hill. In the meantime the French cavalry were approaching. The cuirassiers had passed La Haye-Sainte, and almost cut to pieces a Hanoverian battalion which was advancing to reinforce the defenders. At this moment Lord Edward Somerset led the household brigade of cavalry against the cuirassiers, and the elite of the cavalry of the two nations met with a tremendous shock. But the weight and impetus of the heavy British horsemen, aided by the fact that they were descending the hill, while their opponents had hardly recovered their formation after cutting up the Hanoverians, proved irresistible, and the cuirassiers had driven down the hill. A desperate hand-to-hand -hand conflict took place, and it was here that Shaw, who had been a prize-fighter before he enlisted in the Second Life Guards, killed no less than seven Frenchmen with his own hand, receiving, however, so many wounds that on the return of the regiment from its charge he could no longer sit his horse, and crawling behind a house died there from loss of blood. While the Second Life Guards and First Dragoon Guards pursued the cuirassiers down the slope, the Royals, Scots Greys, and Inniskillens rode to the assistance of Pack's brigade, which had been assailed by four strong brigades of the enemy. Pack rode along at the front of his line, calling upon his men to stand ready. The enemy crossed a hedge within forty yards of the ninety-second, and delivered their fire. The Highlanders waited till they approached within half the distance, then pouring in a volley, charged with leveled bayonets. The French stood firm, and the ninety-second, numbering less than two hundred and fifty men, burst in among them a mere handful among their foes. But just at this moment Ponsonby's heavy cavalry came up, and passing through the intervals of the companies and battalions fell upon the French infantry. In vain the enemy endeavoured to keep their formation. Their front was burst in, their centre penetrated, and their rear dispersed. And in five minutes the great column was a mass of fugitives. Great numbers were killed, and two thousand prisoners taken. End of chapter 18 Waterloo Recording by Mike Harris.